anybody remember when maybe they were a kid or maybe they played it with their kids? Simon Says. Anybody remember that game, Simon Says? A few people do. I used to, when I coached basketball, sometimes I loved to play Simon Says. And so I'd have the kids get in a good proper stance and I'd say Simon Says. And I'd say Simon Says rebound. And then they were to rebound. I'd say Simon Says play defense. And they were supposed to play defense. And say, Simon says, you know, shoot a shot in proper form, and they would shoot a shot, and Simon says, pass the ball. And then eventually you just sort of shout out and you say, pass the ball, and then what happens? If they do that, then they're out and they have to sit on the sideline. And my fear is doing a series like si- or Jesus says, some of us are going to view it like the game Simon says. And we're going to view it that Jesus is always saying something to us. And if we don't do it right, guess what? He's going to kick us out and we're going to have to sit on the sideline. Jesus says, pray. And if you don't pray, or Jesus says, pray in my name. Oh, you don't do that the right way. Then Jesus isn't going to answer your prayer. Jesus says, love. He's like, oh, I guess I'll do that. But then Jesus says, love your enemies. Oh, maybe I'm not going to do that. You got to sit on the sideline. And whatever it is, you're going to hear Jesus say something, and somebody's going to say to you, well, Jesus said that, and you're going to be like all scared and afraid. It's not like the game Simon says. It's a little bit more than that, in that it's a relationship. And Jesus wants to come alongside us and talk to us and encourage us and inspire us. And sometimes he does want to give us boundaries as he does today, to keep us from doing something that's going to be harmful. The reason I decided to do a series, Jesus Says, is because I believe many of us, if you've grown up in the church, or you lived with someone that grew up in the church, you maybe heard, well, the Bible says. Well, I really don't care what you think or believe, the Bible says. It usually happens when it's a controversial topic like homosexuality or divorce and remarriage or living together or something like that. And we'll say, well, you know what the Bible says? And what I've always found is that people that always are quick to point out what the Bible says actually aren't reading the Bible themselves. But we want to use that and we just want to say, you better get your life together because the Bible says. Now, that's not what Christianity is about. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the Bible. As Brian pointed out a few weeks ago, yes, my Bible is always marked up. I even got a Greek Bible. It's all marked up. I don't do my Hebrew Bible because my vocabulary is not good in the Hebrew, but I mark up my Bible. I love the Bible, but the reason I live the Christian life is not because the Bible says. And we're going to talk more and more about that as we go through this series because we need to understand that Jesus Christ, after the resurrection, changed the world upside down. And he did that before there was a Bible like we know it. Before there was something called the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus turned the world upside down because he spoke with words that were life-changing. The other reason I want to do this series is because we do live in a day and age, especially 
Christian and also those who have not yet trusted in Christ. And I don't know whether you're a believer or an unbeliever today, but we are influenced not by what the Bible says or what Jesus says. We're influenced by what the culture says. And so really today, the culture says, you know, if you want again, you want to feel safe, you, you want to feel good, do what makes you feel happy. And as we get into more and more controversial areas in our culture, it's very interesting. Again, people, they just throw, especially if they're not a believer, they throw the Bible to the side and say, I really don't care what your Bible says. But you will notice that people, when they want to make a point, and they're not a believer, about something in the culture, they'll say, well, well, Jesus said this. Yeah, maybe Jesus did say that, but guess what? He said a lot of things. And you're just using what Jesus said to affirm what you feel or think is right. You see, we need to be able to understand how to engage in our culture that is, that is shifting right before our eyes. You can't even watch a commercial today. You can't even watch a TV show today. Culture is trying to influence what you think about life, about relationships, about marriage, about sexuality, about your finances. The world is trying to influence you. And so I thought it would be best for us to take a few weeks and look and see what Jesus Christ himself says to us. Today we're going to start with one of the classic lines. And if you have grown up in the church, you've heard this before. And probably if you've not grown up in the church, maybe you've heard Jesus had said this. It's a simple phrase, it's follow me. Jesus said, follow me. Especially if you pick up Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're gonna find Jesus telling would-be disciples to follow him. Seven times Jesus said while he was doing his ministry, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke records seven times. Now they repeat it over and over again. So if you look in your Bible, you're going to say, well, 21 times he said, follow me. Seven times, though, he says, follow me. In comparison, in the Gospel of John, which we spent a lot of time in John over the past few weeks, 84 times Jesus said, believe. A lot of us think that Jesus went around saying, repent. Actually, Jesus, if you look in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and take away all the times the story is repeated, Jesus only two or three times said, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. So we want to look today at follow me, which is a very important phrase as it relates to being a follower of Jesus Christ, or what some would say, a disciple of Jesus Christ, a student of Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that today by looking at three stories, and hopefully you know these three stories or you've heard them before. If not, you're in for a treat, and I, I, I know if you've never heard these stories before, you want to go back and read them so that you can see exactly what Jesus said. So the first one is found in Matthew 
chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to take it out or your phone or whatever and find Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to be in verse 18. Matthew chapter 4. We need to set a little bit of a context of what is going on. Jesus, again, if you want to say he was about 30 years old, which is when a rabbi would actually start doing their teaching. A rabbi was sort of like a professor or a pastor or a teacher, and he would teach people the interpretation of especially the Old Testament, the Torah, the the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so Jesus is about 30 years old, and he's embarking on this ministry. And like John the Baptist, who went before him, he's letting it know that you need to repent. Literally, you need to change because the kingdom of God is at hand. And so Jesus encounters, not for the first time, and many of us read this and we think, oh, this is just for the first time. Jesus had already been in contact with Andrew and Simon Peter and James and John. Jesus knew them. Jesus had a relationship. In fact, some people, you remember, you might, not, might remember this, probably John was one of Jesus' cousins. So it's not like Jesus is coming out of the blue and who is this new guy? Jesus knew these people and He had earlier said in John chapter 1, come and see who I am. Come and see that I am the Messiah, the chosen one, the Christ. So here's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus had just gone through the temptation in the wilderness. He begins his ministry. And then in verse 18 it says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee. Now, Again, you may not know this, but the Sea of Galilee and the area of Galilee, actually a lot of rabbis and their disciples, this is where they did a lot of their ministry. And so walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who we we call Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Well, see, he's not just using a a clever play on words. He is specific on what he's asking them to do. We'll see that in a second. It says, immediately or instantly, they left their nets and followed him. Now, if I'm reading the Bible for the very first time, or if I've been a Christian for a very long long time, I'm like, they did what? What? They, they, they dropped their nets, they, they dropped their careers, so to speak, they dropped their occupation, their, their way of making a living, they dropped that, and they followed Jesus immediately. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, so it, it's a family business going on here mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. We can't 
divorce this section from the previous verse. The previous verse, Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, when they would have heard the kingdom of God is at hand, they would have been thinking that the kingdom is coming to do two primary objectives. One, to save people. In their eyes, to deliver them from Rome, to deliver them from bondage, to deliver them from slavery, to deliver them from obviously their sin, but more than that, they, they felt like they were oppressed, and so the kingdom of God was about deliverance, salvation. But it also meant, if they had read their Old Testament, and most Jews knew their Old Testament very well, they knew that the kingdom of God represented the end times. Now, in the end times, guess what was going to happen? Judgment. And so in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah and other places, when they talk about fishing for men or casting their nets for men, it meant judgment. And so what Jesus is saying is, you're going to go out and catch individuals who you're going to try to prevent them from being judged because God has a kingdom of salvation that he's trying to deliver. Just out of curiosity, how many of you consider yourselves blue-collar workers? Any blue-collar workers? Anybody? Oh, come on, you got to be proud of that. Blue-collar workers? My understanding is, don't we live sort of in a blue-collar area? Hard workers? That's what I hear a lot of times, you know, moving in this area. All these people who are really hard workers. I want to tell you something. Guess what? This passage is for you. Because Jesus understood, and everybody in that culture would have understood, fishermen were some of the hardest workers around. In Galilee, these fishermen worked long hours. You know, sometimes it says they were mending their nets, they were fixing their nets. Sometimes they'd be out all night and they wouldn't catch anything. Other times they'd have a large haul. It was hard, hard work. What Jesus is saying, this is so important, he's saying, follow me because guess what? I know you can do hard work. You see, being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not easy. In fact, it requires a lot of hard work. And so Jesus goes, if you're a blue collar, you should be very excited about this. Jesus goes for you first because he says, you understand what hard work is all about. You understand sweat and tears and discipline. And he's saying, to follow me, guess what? It's going to require hard work because talking to people about judgment and the kingdom and sin, and forgiveness, and repentance is hard work. You see, following Christ is not easy. It's difficult because he's got a message that he wants us to go into this culture. The culture we live in today is anti-Christ. And our job is to rescue as many people as possible from the judgment that is to come. So Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
Now, if you're reading this passage and you're starting to catch on, you may be saying to yourself, this is really radical. And you're saying it's radical because Jesus is asking them basically to give up their career, to give up the family business, to give up probably their inheritance, to give up everything they know about how to make money and earn a living and follow me. And walk away from that and go off to seminary, so to speak. Seminary is where people go to be trained for the ministry. Come and, and follow me. Have a relationship with me. Let me teach you the scriptures. Let me teach you about life. So that you can prepare for a new occupation, a new identity. To be fishers of men. I look at this passage and I see five quick observations about what it means to follow Jesus. The first one is this. When Jesus says, follow me, he's talking about a relationship. Follow me. Jesus isn't saying follow rules. Now again, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ yet, most of the time, the thing that, that causes us to, to get confused or hung up on becoming a Christian or a disciple of Christ is we think it's about the rules. Jesus is saying it's not about the rules, it's about a relationship. In fact, whenever Jesus talked about salvation and having a relationship, he used terms we could understand, father and son, vine and the branches, Sheep and a shepherd. He, he's very relational in his approach. Following Jesus is about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not about the rules. Second, it's about focus. Where is your focus today? For many of us, the reason we're not disciples of Jesus Christ and not followers of Jesus Christ is because our focus is on our career or on our family business, or our family issues, or you fill in the blank, whatever it is, that is where our focus is. And what Jesus is saying, nope, follow me. In fact, literally they would say, Jesus would walk and a rabbi would walk out in front and you would get dust on your feet because you would be following the rabbi wherever he went. The focus was on the rabbi. The focus is on Jesus Christ. The third thing I see is priority. The priorities change. It, it was interesting. Um, for some reason this week, I was talking to somebody that goes to another church, and I was talking to a pastor at another church, and they were talking about this community, and they were saying, yeah, after Easter, everybody's gone. Which, again, our, our attendance is down after Easter. And, then again, not people from this church, not a pastor from this church. They're like, after Easter. And, in fact, both people said to me, it's like, well, when lake time comes or when it's the season to go to the lake, we van moose from the church. Or the pastor says, everybody takes off and goes to the lake. And I think what Jesus is saying, he's not saying you can't go to the lake. What Jesus is saying is, what are your priorities? Because being a disciple of Jesus Christ requires certain priorities, and the number one priority is having a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you go back and you look at every one of these things, here's the fourth observation I make, the urgency of it. Immediately. And as I talk to Christians a lot, you know, they say, well, well Mark, I, I'm going to get in, involved in a relationship with Jesus Christ or following Jesus Christ after the busy season is over or after I retire or, or after my kids are out of the home or after soccer season or baseball season or football season, then I will follow Jesus Christ. That, that's not what we see about following Jesus Christ immediately. They dropped their nets and they left everything and they followed after Christ. And probably the most important aspect of this passage is the authority of Jesus Christ. You see, being a disciple means you're going to listen not to your own authority, to the authority of someone else. You're going to listen to the authority of Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, come and follow me, and again, seven times he says that, it's usually a command. Jesus is saying, I got authority, and it's almost like a military command. You come and you follow me. You see, this is the radical nature. It's not about what we're leaving behind. The radical nature of discipleship is following Christ. Here's the third or the second example, Matthew 9. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to have a personal story here. Matthew chapter 9. Now some of you, maybe your Bibles will say Levi or you read. Matthew is again one of those people that had a couple names. Matthew, I, I love the name Matthew. Any Matthews in the crowd? Matthew in Hebrew means gift of God. He probably wanted to try to remind the people of his name, of his roots, that God had a special calling on his life. And so he uses the name Matthew. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says this, as Jesus passed on from there, again, that's what ministry looked like. It was out among the people. It wasn't coming to church, so to speak. He says, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the, or when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew wants to let us know what it was like to be personally called by Jesus Christ himself to follow him. Now I said, how many of you consider yourself blue collar? How many of you consider yourself white collar? Anybody? A few hands? Again, I'm, Maybe we're not proud, maybe we don't want to be labeled, I don't know, but uh, um, we're now dealing in white collar. But we're also dealing more than just white collar here, we're dealing with somebody who is considered by society an outcast, they're, they're, they're vile. The tax collectors were considered like somebody who would be at the high school 
and they would be selling drugs out of their trunk and making a pretty good penny at it. You would, you would think that's disgusting. Or somebody that was making money, maybe say from abortions or something like that, and they're getting rich off of it, you would say, wow, that is, is very bad news. Tax collectors were a lot of these tax collectors. Again, Matthew grew up a Jew, but he sold his soul out to Rome. Why? Because he wanted to make money and he loved money. Now, once again, we, think, we read this and we're like, oh, wow, Jesus just shows up at a tax booth and calls Matthew and he leaves. We need to understand this, that everybody probably understood that Jesus had a relationship with Matthew. In fact, Andrew and Peter and James and John, who were now following, they probably hated to go by Matthew. Matthew was probably the one that they had to pay their sales tax for the fish that they caught. And I imagine maybe even Jesus, as a carpenter, as a carpenter's son, maybe he remembers, and maybe he remembers his dad being frustrated, having to pay all the sales tax on the lumber or the, whatever he made as a craftsman and as a carpenter. So they had a relationship. So it's just not out of the blue, but based out of that relationship and being known as an outcast, Jesus says to him, follow me. Jesus says to someone who is now way different than the fishermen who were making an honest living, now he says to someone who is making a dishonest living, you need to follow me. And I'm sure that the disciples, even before the Pharisees, so we're talking, again, Peter and Andrew and James and John and some of the early ones that followed before Matthew, they're probably saying, time out here, Jesus. <laughs> Don't you know what type of people they are? I, I get you asking me to, to follow them, but do you get what type of people they are? They can't be following you. Matthew cannot be following you. He's bad news. He's going to wreck your reputation. Which I love this passage because, again, I'm not going to ask you, obviously, if you view yourself as a sinner. But if you view yourself as an outcast, if you view yourself as someone that God could never love, or you're doing a bunch of stuff that you know is wrong and not acceptable, you got to love this passage. Because we see Jesus is much more comfortable with us and our baggage and our sin than we think he is. Obviously, Jesus doesn't want us to stay there with our baggage and our sin, but Jesus feels comfortable with us. In fact, he goes over to his house and he sits at a table and he reclines and other tax collectors and other sinners are there and Jesus is fellowshipping with them. This is also a message to us as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. We need to be comfortable with people who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ yet. And we need to try to influence them. That's what following Christ is all about. So in the first situation, the early disciples maybe had to leave behind their career. Jesus is asking Matthew to leave behind his character. Again, it's a bad character. It's a bad reputation. It's a bad identity. He's saying, leave that 
behind. Now again, if you haven't yet trusted in Christ, or maybe you have believed in Christ, but you're not sure about following, you need to understand something here. Jesus is making a statement, not just to Matthew, but to the the Pharisees and to the religious people. And it's an important statement. He's saying, following me is not about rules. It's about a relationship. It's not about having the right beliefs, and it's not about having the right behavior. It's about following Christ. It's about going after Christ, and again, making him the number one priority in your life. Here's the third, follow me. So if you would, turn over to Matthew 19 now. And again, hopefully maybe you've heard this story before. Um, It's a powerful story in Matthew 19. Matthew 19. And it's the story of the rich young ruler. Now Jesus just says that the kingdom of God belongs to children. And now we're going to see somebody who's far from being a child, but being the rich young ruler. You got to see this. So in verse 16 of chapter 19, it says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, I've spent a lot of time in the Gospel of John. We talk about eternal life. It's a quality of life. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that eternal life ever comes up. And what this rich young ruler is asking, he already believes he has a great relationship with God because he's rich. And he's a ruler. That's how they thought. And so I got money and and I'm a ruler. I'm set with God. He's like, how can I guarantee that in the future, I'm also going to have a relationship with God? So that's what he means by eternal life. And Jesus said to him, he says, why do you ask me about what is good? Or why do you call me good in some translations? He says, there is only one who is good if you would Enter life, keep the commandments. Now, just because Jesus says this doesn't mean he's saying that we need to keep the commandments. Jesus knows we can't keep the commandments. But some of us think we can keep the commandments. And so he says, which ones do you want me to keep? He says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that interesting? You see, the reason Jesus says this is I think he wants him to say, oh, I'm so sorry, I have failed. I ask for forgiveness. I'm not perfect. I'm flawed. I I have my issues. I I haven't lived a good life. So it's going to require grace and mercy. But he doesn't say that. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. Literally, some translation says he has kept them wholeheartedly. That means he, he was perfect in his obedience. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect. Jesus knows right where he's at. He thinks he's perfect. He, he thinks he's got this Christian life figured out, or not a Christian life, a life with God figured out. He says, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So now we're not even 
blue collar or white collar, we're, we're talking elite. We're talking the top of the class. We're talking someone that has money. And it's very interesting. Um, Jeff was talking about money when he called for the offering and, and where we're at. One of the things that you will realize in all three of these stories, they're, they're all about money. Being, being a disciple of Jesus Christ means we know how to handle our money. And we know that our money belongs to God. And then we know that we, we give back to God. But it's very interesting. Jesus does a test. And I don't know if you see the test or not, but he says, if you give to the poor and give everything away you have, you will have treasure in heaven. He's testing them. He's seeing, where is your heart? Is your heart focused in on the here and now, or is your heart focused on eternity? That, that's where a disciple is. A disciple is focused in on eternity. And then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but, God, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What will we have? It's very interesting, um, as I've shared, and keep praying for, for Danny Stevens and, and pray for Angie Stevens as they've gone through the trauma. And um, one of the times I was up there, one of Danny Stevens' favorite verses, his dad always talked about it, is this passage about the camel going through the eye of a needle. And so we had a, had a little Bible study up there and just sort of like, well, what is this passage talking about? And what Jesus is trying to emphasize is not that rich people can't enter into the kingdom of God, but that it is difficult for rich people to enter into the kingdom of God. It's difficult for rich people to become disciples of Christ. Why? Because they have put their faith in their finances and in their treasures here on earth rather than putting their faith in following Jesus. One of my prayers, it's a proverb, and one of my prayers has always been, Lord, don't make me super rich, <laughs> and don't, don't make me super poor. Give me enough just to live on. Because why? Because when, when you're rich, you lose focus sometimes, and when you're super poor, you lose focus, and to trust in God. So what's Jesus trying to get at about discipleship? Is he saying that you need to radically give away everything? He's saying, no, your heart needs to be in the right place. You need to be willing to follow Jesus and not let money get in the way. One of the things I was going to do, and, and you can go and you, you, you can look at it, but uh, again, with all this stuff about Trump declaring his taxes. And so some politicians are starting to declare their, their income and what they've given to charitable giving. And it was interesting, I was watching this one and their charitable giving, even though it may look impressive, what it compared to what they made, again, it fell right in that national average of like, 
I don't even know if it even made 2%, but it, it, it was almost like, oh, look at me. I, I give to charitable giving, but it, it fell way short. You see, discipleship, there's many things that can hold us up from following Christ. And, and what I want you to know is don't let giving, don't let your money, don't let finances get in the way of following Christ. And again, I, sometimes it, it breaks my heart, you know, it's like somebody says, well, I don't want to be, a, be a involved with the church. All they care about is giving. And no, that's not what we care about. I can tell you, for me as a pastor, I care about your relationship with the Lord. And I don't want your finances to get in a, to keep you stuck from having an intimate relationship with the Lord. And I think if Jesus was here, he'd be saying the same thing. He said it really to Peter and Andrew and James and John. He said it to Matthew and he said it to the rich young. These are radical words, but they're words that will change your life forever. So let us follow Jesus.